0: From 11FS, this is FinTech Insider News. Today, more big behemoths getting into buy now pay later as Amazon teams up with a firm. National Bank of Canada invests $300 million in Flinks to help them expand, and a fake Banksy NFT was sold for more than $300,000 via Banksy's own website. All this and much, much more on today's show. Oh, and before we get started, we just want to tell you about something we're cooking up here at 11FS, and a quick word from our sponsors.
1: Temenos is the world's leader in banking software, helping over 3,000 banks serve over 1.2 billion people. Our purpose is to make banking better. Together with our community, we make banks more successful, individuals better banked, and society better served. With our software, banks can create more human, differentiated digital experiences, Hyper efficient business models to benefit the bank and their customers, and simplify and transform their back office. Our clients are the highest performing banks with cost income ratios which are twice better than the industry average. Learn more at Temenos.com.
2: Hey, folks, over here at 11FS, we're still working hard to build the next generation of financial services, and our team is growing quickly. So we're looking for a bunch of new 11s to join us. If you or someone you know is up for a new challenge and a bit of a fintech nerd like us, check out the roles in consulting across product, engineering, design, delivery, and strategy. You'll find all the details at 11fs.com forward slash careers.
0: Welcome to episode 560 of Fintech Insider. My name is Simon Taylor, and I'm joined by my 11 best colleague, the one and only Guerra Guana Guerra, How are you?
3: Doing okay. Um, I am very happy because the winter is over where I'm living right now, and the warm weather is just coming <laughs> in. So I feel like you in London are getting into the cold weather, and I'm getting into my warm weather in Nairobi. Very excited
0: about that. Well, you know, you you like to you like to keep it different. You like to you like to stand out a little, and I, and I respect that. You know, change up the weather. Um, I wore a hoodie for the first time for a couple of days. I know, depending on where you're listening to this, weather changes are gonna are gonna do their thing and seasons keep on passing. But fintech never sleeps. And of course, thankfully, we are joined by some guests to help us uh, talk through all of the changes in fintech. Uh, making a welcome return is uh, Sharon Kamathi, who's inclusive economies editor. At thompson royces foundation of course former panelist on our after dark Why now pay later debate late last christmas i expect you'll have some thoughts on today's headlines thank you for joining us tell us a little bit about your new role sharon
1: hey yeah thanks guys for having me i'm really excited to be back um so my new role is at the thompson royces foundation and that's the newswire reuters's charitable arm And with this new job, I'm basically commissioning stories about inequality, racial injustice, um, gender equity, business and human rights and sustainable investment. So quite different to um, my old fintech futures family who I miss. Shout out to Alex and Tanya as well. Whoop, whoop. Um, but yeah it, it's quite different but yeah it's really cool uh, some really heavy stuff like today's report on the hundreds of African workers who have sadly been detained and deported in Abu Dhabi uh, so do check that out as well I'll, I'll be pinning it um, on my Twitter too later and you can find out my handle after this.
0: Fantastic well Sharon uh, thanks for doing such good work and, and uh, kind of bringing those uh, those stories to the world um, and making a fintech insider debut we have uh, Frederick Lavoie I hope I said your name vaguely right for Fred- good enough uh, simon thank you i'm, I'm uh, that's you know I, I butchered it but hopefully i did it a, a half well it was still elegant yeah <laughs> thank you thank you i'll take <laughs> elegant um you are co-founder and ceo over at flinks um thank you for joining us big week for you guys we're going to talk a little bit more about that later on um but uh, just remind everybody what flinks do Yes, so Flinks,
4: uh in for the, those that know the uh, industry well, it's uh, we are a financial data aggregator. Uh, so we play in the space of open banking. And uh, I think we're going to get more into that later. But uh, as a short blurb, uh, that's who we are.
0: Open banking provider, open data, bring the goodness. All right, let's crack on with the news. First story is from Finextra. And this is about Amazon partnering with a firm to offer customers a buy now, pay later option. Um, And of course, this is available to their US customers um, as an option at checkout. The installment payment option is already being tested with some customers and will be rolled out more broadly over the next few months. Customers will have the option of splitting the total cost of purchases of more than $50 into monthly payments. A firm says that approved customers are shown the total cost of their purchase up front and will never pay more than what they agree to at checkout. They will also not be charged any late or hidden fees. The news sent a firm's stock price soaring. By the early morning in the United States on Monday, the firm was trading over over $97 a share. That's up from $67 on Friday's close. That's quite a movement. Sharon, I'm going to come to you first on this. I know you are uh, on team hate for Buy Now, Pay Later um, (laughs) in in our debate, and the space just seems to be blowing up more and more and more. So what are your thoughts when you saw this?
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, I wasn't surprised because it's such a lucrative market. I mean, the global Buy Now, Pay Later market size is expected to reach like 20.4 billion by 2028, according to a new report by Grandview Research so yeah i I wasn't surprised as to all these heavyweights coming in and striking the iron whilst it's hot Um, but you know that i generally think that it comes with its risks so of course there are some upsides as we discussed, you know, people can buy things a bit more easier and there are a few more options, but with those options comes some risks. So Citizens Advice Bureau in April found that overall 27% of UK adults have used these firms in the last 12 months and it was rising to 37% of disabled people and 45% of people with a mental health problem so yeah i mean the risks are already there just by those stats alone
0: (laughs) i I love that you bring data to the conversation because like it (laughs) it really does highlight it though like it is is this something that is disproportionately available to vulnerable customers and uh therefore is it disproportionate in terms of its its benefit and its risk and that's i think a fair question guerra what are your thoughts
3: yeah i'm on team hate ish uh buy now pay later until Birkin gets, uh, buy not pay later, then I'll buy a Birkin bag uh, via installment, but that's, that's for another day. <laughs> um, no, but I mean, I, I think this is this for Amazon, it feels like this is going to encourage perpetual debt spirals because Amazon is something people use all the time and, you know, it's designed to be used frequently. So if, you, if you're encouraging people to pay by installment for all their groceries or all the, like wh- whatever payments they're going to be making, spending more than they, than, than they can afford each time. Um, that just seems unsustainable to me. I don't know. Uh, you know, like we said, regulation is still lagging, but I don't know if there's there's any upside really except for one. Yeah. OK, get buy now, pay later for my my Amazon headphones and I'm going to get what is the, I don't know if someone can answer this for me, but are buy now, pay later firms reporting to credit bureaus? it could that be a upside like people
0: it depends on the firm that okay. is my understanding some of them are voluntary doing that more and more now and actually the part of the risk is that they do report to to those uh to the credit rating agencies in that you might not be aware that you were taking a debt product and you might not be aware that it could impact your your credit score but increasingly um i'm going to take the other side of the debate just because I was on Team Love. Is the enemy here sort of uh, irresponsible lending or is there actually an upside to buy now, pay later when done right? If you can get something at 0% and you can spread the cost of uh, an expensive purchase that maybe you need over three or four months, uh, then then surely that's beneficial to the consumer, especially if the merchant is funding that. In other words, Amazon buys that risk. The, the, the price you pay is, is more or less the same. That is, as a mechanism, quite interesting and quite powerful. Accepting those points about the risks, um, Frederick, I'm going to bring you in here. What are your thoughts about this partnership in particular?
4: Well, from the Flink standpoint, it is exciting in terms of um, uh, that space in itself is a, is a growth space, and it's a, it's part of our our mission to tools the companies that deliver the experiences that users want uh, to give that tooling. So, uh, and as a specific example, with some work that we do that traces to this deal with uh, Amazon and Affirm is Affirm recently, a couple months ago, I believe, uh, purchased a, um, a buy now pay later in Canada and that's one we're powering. So we're basically working with, with that group um, on, on their products. So on, on the Flink side, uh, as a pure tie to our mission, it's exciting. And uh, maybe I can comment a bit on the editorial element as well, if I may, uh, Simon and, and guys. So I guess the, the lens that I use to, uh, to assess that product is a bit like it comes as an alternative to other things. And so the alternative to me that sometimes and maybe most times is not desirable is the credit card because of those fees, because of, of how it can affect your credit as well. So like an example of that um, from a friend of mine starting his own business, that basically needed a, a computer, his computer crashed. He was basically uh, in, in, you know, in, in need of having one right now, no cash to buy it. Um, and he was like, Hey, if a firm was in Canada, that was a couple of years back when by an operator was not, uh, in Canada. And he, he said, if, if a firm was operating here, I would love to use their product so I could buy my computer, basically financing my, my startup in that way versus like having a credit card and knowing that you're going to have these like 20% and more interest rate on, on the, uh, on basically the loan in a way. So that's, that's one lens. I don't know that it's a full story. I don't pretend to have a, a comprehensive view on it, but, uh, from that standpoint, to me, it's. Um, there's definitely some some serious benefit there.
0: I think that, that let's not forget there are benefits to some users. I think is an important point. But I, I suspect Sharon, you you don't dispute that, right? It's 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 kind of um, yes, some people can benefit from it. But what about everybody else?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I completely agree. Of course, those that can do it do do it. You know, if you know that you've got good credit. Why not? But. I mean, Citizens Advice Bureau found almost two in five people, so that's 5.7 million people who've used Buy Now, Pay Later in the last year, didn't think it was proper borrowing in quotes, and 6 million didn't fully understand what they were signing up for. And also the 4 in 10 that did use it in the last 12 months are actually struggling to repay it. So I I feel like the stats kind of speak for themselves. So I I just go with where the data goes and the data is showing that it is still quite risky with a lot of people not fully understanding what it is um, and a lot of people not fully getting the consequences of not repaying that to their credit.
0: I'd love to see the same data for credit cards. Um, side by side, yeah. because the, the, obviously, the obvious problem with credit cards is that the the debt compounds on a monthly basis. So not only do you have the initial debt, you have the debt getting worse, especially if you only pay the minimums off. So that sort of 20%, okay, it's 2% a month in, in reality, but that compounds month of a month of a month. And if you're spending more and you're only paying off the minimums, you can get into real persistent debt in a way that, I think what works for people psychologically about Buy Now Pay Later is it's this one line of debt for this one product. And there's something elegant in that sort of uh, installment for the just one thing type of mental model. I think people understand it and it feels low friction. But to your point, we have to make sure then that they feel in control of that and that they understand the consequences of kind of what they're doing. Interesting. I'm just going to read out a question that came in from from one of our listeners. So Arad, uh, live who's CEO and co-founder of Sunbit, told our Buy Now Pay Later insight show on episode 557 that he believes Buy Now Pay Later is the future of credit. And we asked our Instagram followers if they agreed, and on Twitter as well. And does anybody want to guess what the split of Hell No versus Hell Yes was? Um, Guerra, what do you think it was?
3: I feel like the Hell No camp is, I, I feel like I'm with the majority, potentially.
0: Yeah. Uh, is, is it the future, Sharon? Do you feel like you were with the majority or the minority?
3: Well, I
1: think I'd be in the hell no camp as well, to be honest.
0: <laughs> and would you say that would be the majority of our listeners or not?
1: Uh, I want to say, I hope everyone thinks like me. So yes, it will be the majority. <laughs>
0: <laughs> How are you, Frederick? I'll,
4: um, I'll flip the coin and say bang on 50-50. Oh, okay. Probably okay. not
0: accurate, but I'll go with that. So drum roll. So it turns out of the small, tiny sample size that we had, well, it was a reasonable sample size, um, 60% of our listeners said buy now, pay later is the future of credit, and 40% said no. So that's kind of interesting. Now, I don't know if that necessarily means it's the right thing and it's necessarily moral, but you can definitely see the momentum. I mean, in, in the past couple of um, weeks alone, we've seen Square buying after pay. Goldman Sachs teaming up with Apple to offer buy now, pay later. Um, Afterpay teaming up with Westpac in Australia. There's there's, there's all of these things starting to happen. Uh, Frederick, what do you think is driving some of this momentum?
4: Yeah, um, I think on many levels, the benefits align um, not just for consumers, but also for merchants. And that's a big driver of adoption because they're the one distributing the solution at the end of the day. And so one tricky element about the Um, the, the buy now, pay later model is that like, if I'm a user, like, why am I not being charged anything? Like, where's the catch? And the catch is not in the buy now, pay later model, but the catch is in the credit card processing model where there's about 3% of anything you buy online with your credit card that is going to the processor. And so, uh, the merchant gets that taken off, uh, right, right then. Um, and so that's the fact that uh, Mastercard, Visa, and others are, are basically benefiting from that's being shaped off, so that um, the pay later platform can absorb the cost of their services, and the merchant can can actually have uh, more margins on their product and distribute their products to more users. So I think the chain of benefits is uh, because it's multifaceted. It it it, it is driving adoption. And uh, obviously, it follows a broader trend of fintech services being adopted across the board.
0: Yeah, for merchants, it's a hard thing to say no to, I imagine. I mean, they, they often see 20 to 30% increased sales just by adding this this thing at checkout. And for consumers, it looks like a great deal, which is 0% over four months, so long as I keep my payments up. But the the devil is always in the detail with those things, so long as you keep your payments up, of course. All right, I'm going to move us to the next story. And um, well, we're going to stick with you, Frederic, because this is... Uh, in your wheelhouse a little bit. Um, story comes from Newswire. National Bank of Canada has invested more than 103 million dollars in Flinx, including a 30 million in growth capital. So, of course, this investment uh, will allow Flinx apparently to continue its. Fast-paced growth and meet the demand of fintechs, asset managers, and credit unions with tools that enable innovation and financial data across North America. Uh, Flink's plans to double its headcount in order to l- deliver the growing need for better, more actionable data. And uh, Flink's plans to double its headcount in order to deliver the growth that it needs for better, more actionable data provided to its clients. The CEO of Flinx said, we want to empower service providers of all sizes to drive positive outcomes for their customers using financial data. So, Frederick, probably makes sense uh, for us to come to you on this one, I think. Thank you for joining us. Before we dig into the round, remind everybody what Flinx does and your mission as well. Absolutely. So, the Flinx,
4: one of the uh, ways we like to, to frame our work is we're guarantors of financial data portability rights. So we basically allow users to share their data to access financial services that typically sit outside of their banks so that they can transfer faster, cheaper, and access to overall better services than than what they they would otherwise have.
0: Yeah, I think it's uh, kind of uh, a well-known model of open banking, but how do you guys um, differentiate? Can you tell us a little bit about how you do what you do?
4: Absolutely. Yeah, there there are... maybe two handfuls of, of leading players around the globe, I guess. So um, uh, there are some overlaps, there are some, some differentiations, of course. But one of the ways to understand uh, our space, the way that we like to to, to put it in is uh, there's three pillars to what we do. Uh, one is connect, one is enrich, and one is utilize. It's basically the, the terms we use to, to, to frame all of our efforts internally and the way we, we, uh, we push it out externally. And so the connect piece is where... It's capturing the consent of the user to make that connection to the bank and and enable the, the pretty traditional data flow. That's where a lot of incumbents in the space, uh, Finicity, Plaid, and others in North America, for example, which are our market, have been winning large market shares in the past. And Flinks does that as well. This is, at this point in the adoption and then the maturity of the technology and solutions, it's pretty table stakes. Now, the it starts to get interesting uh, when we enter the enrich portion which touches on transforming a lot of messy, vast amount of messy data, um, difficult to interpret as a fintech into something highly consumable. So decisions can, better decisions can be made quicker uh, so that at the end of the day, the user gets a better service and so on. And so um, examples of that is uh, you want to get a loan. Well, you have to put in your pay stubs and you have to upload your bank statements and so on. Well, Flink's with the connection, we not only allow an easy consent uh, and and transfer of data, but we also allow the verification of income, for instance, to be automated. And so um, the the service can be unlocked more quickly and it's less of a burden for fintechs and so on. So the enriched piece is a big, big chunk of making the data consumable for fintechs. And then the utilize piece is um, is a bit, um, a way we like to think about it is there is a need for a um, a, a bit of a Shopify aspect to the data infrastructure that flinks powers. And I think what Shopify did very brilliantly is is you have a great idea for, for e-commerce. You can wake up, have your idea uh, while drinking your coffee. And then by the time you go to sleep at night, you can make your first sale. And that's obviously very impressive and that's, uh, a great part of why they were that successful uh, in their growth as, a, a, as of recent. Um, and now the, the, how that applies to us is the tooling that we can, uh, the, basically the no-code portion, so all of the tooling that we that we provide, as well as the expertise in certain cases where more larger enterprise clients, for instance, even if, if you have a great technical documentation, you need to have a team of experts that are able to bring them up to, to, to unlock the full potential so it's uh, it's the utilized piece is not just technology but it's also there's a human component to it and so together that's the um, that's the total package that puts a, a single value prop where Flinks makes that data available with with
0: these pillars yeah got it. And it kind of reminds me to, for a European context, a little bit of where Tinker's is headed um, in that they've got sort of a lot of the here's one we made earlier versions that, that becomes configurable. And we're seeing that as the market matures, we're getting further and further from here's the data in a raw format to here's the data enriched to here's some ways you could use the data very, very quickly. I'm also interested in like the funding, particularly coming from an institution like National Bank mm. of Canada. What does that mean for you in particular and, and how you put that to use?
4: Yeah. So the, the the first element to note is there's a certain size to the transaction. Of course, for flinks it's a, it's our biggest round as, as it should be. So it's material to us. But even on the market level for, if I narrow it to North America, it's one of the largest signal that the banks have uh, pointed in the direction of open banking uh, in all of North America. Um, and that signal is they look at the future and they see, the multiplicity of experiences that users will benefit from, and they're not going to be bank powered. And so they're betting on that future. And that's, so National Bank, of course, we commend them for having that vision, but it's a signal that falls in line with a, a broader understanding from the market that uh, the large banks basically now, they cannot uh, be blind to the future, which is which is all these experiences being being powered outside of their control, let's say uh, or, or their full control.
0: Yeah, I I do find, especially with the, the, some of the North American banks, open banking feels like a European thing. And, um, unless you're one of the very big banks and you've signed a deal with, with, with Platt or Finicity and some of the data exchanges, then it's like, oh, I don't really need to worry about that. But actually it's a very different thing. And there's, there's tons of opportunities there. Guerra, I know Canada's near and dear to your heart. What are your thoughts as, as, as you look at this?
3: First of all, congratulations, Frederick, and also to Flink's, like huge, huge effort. When this story popped up on 11 fss Slack, our CEO, David, said he used a technical term that is a big-ass investment from a bank. So that's huge, like really, really huge. Thank um, you. Yeah. My, so my, my thoughts are, yeah, you, you know, you're working with National Bank of Canada. You know, there's CIBC, there's RBC, there's BMO, there's... There's a couple like big banks who still have a bit of a chokehold on the retail and also, you know, commercial banking space. What are they thinking right now? What do you think that those guys are thinking in terms of seeing this investment? Um, and what do you think they're going to do next? What, what What's the future looking like in the next two, three years?
4: Yeah. So there's an interesting uh, timing in, in Canada where the banks basically now are are forced in a way to see the future or are starting to see the future where um, they have to play a, an integral part in the um, in the open banking landscape, which is coming much faster than a couple of years ago, even we anticipated. And so part of that is the success of fintechs, which translated to our success as well. But part of it also is a, a, a much more, a stronger political will, which is, um, uh, got inspired a lot by the UK and the, the European leadership are on that front, I would say. Uh, but so there's sort of the market pushing hard in that direction, as well as now the, the political class in Canada is recognizing the value, um, the added value of the competition that that proper open banking brings. And so that's um, it's basically all these signals are pointing very strongly in, in, uh, in one direction.
0: No, that's that's exciting, Frederica, and it feels to me like Canada's on the brink of its own fintech movement. Like, there's just so many interesting things happening, so many neobanks starting to come to market, open banking starting to become more of a thing. Uh, what are your reflections on this, Sharon?
1: Oh, I think it's um, I guess it's great news for for you guys at Flink's. So, w- well done. Um, and in terms of open banking, I guess the the only downside is that I guess it's not being rolled out across all of North America still there's still a a bit of struggling there and also the lack thereof of any sort of standardization and harmonization of any sort of like rules and like regulations in place so that everyone has Mm -hmm. some sort of you know way of of playing the same field but yeah otherwise I I think it's good news I guess also it brings up the buzzword of financial inclusion Mm -hmm. because hopefully maybe that can open up some Discussions about you know people understanding their credit a bit more, people getting more in touch with what's happening to their bank account besides the current account, you know, being able to access products easier and, and more openly. So yeah, I'm I'm all for it.
0: And we've seen um, I think there was um, an executive order quite recently where the beginnings of establishing some standards are, are coming. I think from the CFPB, where you know that is there's political will in in uh, in your friends to the south as well, um, Frederick. So that th- this may start to come. Uh, but as, as as you said, uh, the the reality of open banking uh, has existed. It's very much been sort of data aggregation. I like that model of like uh, sort of enrich and utilise. That's that's very elegant. Um, as as you look forward then to the next sort of uh, eighteen months, what's what's coming around the corner for you guys?
4: So uh, as we mentioned, we're uh, doubling the headcount. So we're going to go from roughly one hundred and fifty to. Times two of that, roughly three hundred and more. Of course, after that, but uh, there's a, a there's a couple of big bites ahead of us. And the the big emphasis on our side is is um, getting taking the the space that is ahead of us and that is available in the U.S., which is not uh, did not come as an obvious expansion or next move uh, business wise. Uh, it came uh, as a surprise about a year ago when it was the signals of customers using us in Canada and Plaid or others in the U.S. and being not satisfied with the service sort of like forced us into entry. And so that alone gave us the initial push to, to, um, to get a product to market. And now we're in a space where we're still, even though our, our, our the value prop that we can bring is proving to be getting traction and, and delivering value, then the, the challenge that we have is we now are facing a sort of IBM versus newcomer type of thing because Platt has established themselves as a great trustable brand and they do have, offer uh, great services as well. So it's uh, it's not an easy target, but we're basically in a place where we can see the grounds ahead of us and, and the, the, the space that we can that's available for us to capture. And so it's a, a bit of a, a, an execution
0: play for us in the next little while yeah no it's interesting canadian fintechs heading down into north america and more broadly and uh into the united states and united states companies starting to move up into canada and see that as the next logical expansion exciting times already we are just going to take a quick pause here whilst we hear from our sponsors and we'll be back shortly
2: There is a better way to hire internationally, and it starts with Deal. Everything from contract creation, record keeping, payments, and full-time employment is all in one place for teams all over the world. Companies anywhere can hire compliantly everywhere thanks to Deal. It's payroll and compliance built for today's worldwide workforce. To learn more, visit Let's Deal forward slash 11FS. That's Let's Deal, D-E-E-L, Dot .com forward slash 11FS and redeem an exclusive offer of three months free when you hire a contractor and 20% for your first year when you hire an employee. The banking industry has lots of baggage. So, well, we've been thinking, what if you could build a bank from scratch? Join us and some very special guests as we hit a reset button. Our latest After Dark virtual live podcast recording takes place on Wednesday, the 15th of September. Head to bit.ly forward slash That's bit.ly forward slash to sign up now. You definitely won't want to miss this one.
0: Thank you so much to our sponsors. All right, next story again comes from our friends at Nexttra. This is about Alpaca raising $50 million and moving into crypto trading. So Alpaca is a stock brokerage platform that offers APIs for fintech apps to connect and trade US stocks. They've raised more than $50 million and laid out a plan to launch cryptocurrency trading. Alpaca has also teamed up with Plaid to allow broker API partners to simplify the account funding experience for a lot of their customers. Launched in 2018, Alpaca has seen a 1500% year-to-year date growth in brokerage accounts and has been expanding in partnerships across Europe, Southeast Asia, Africa, North America, Latam the CEO of Alpaca says, by the end of the year, we're going to see close to 100 global fintech apps built with our APIs go live with their stock trading platforms. We're unlocking the ability to invest in US companies in places around the world that have never had this opportunity through fintech partners that share our vision, democratizing investing. So, guys, I'm sure you've seen every fintech app in the around the world at the moment is adding stock trading to it. That, and there are dedicated apps. Revolut's added it. Robinhood added it. Square added it. And a lot of those company, folks use a company like DriveWealth, who does this broker-as-a-service uh, API. is a competitor to that. But it's an interesting market that we're starting to see uh, evolve. Um, Frederick, what were your thoughts when you saw this?
4: the first thing that comes
0: to mind
4: is going back to when i personally first heard a, a fintech and it's like oh it's a democratization of finance and now this is like a, another strong signal in the direction of of, of trading and so it's not, it doesn't obviously it doesn't come as a surprise but it's sort of where it leads is the is the interesting element to me, where it leads is that fragmentation of experiences, an API to power trading. So we're going to go from, hey, there's 5, 20, 50 banks that offer trading platforms in any jurisdiction to there's 500 different entities that can offer it with a great experience and so on. And so that's sort of like that march where finance becomes more accessible. And ultimately, if you flip it and you take the consumer side, then you can basically consume your financial products uh, with a brand that you associate with, with your, in terms of values. Um, so there's a fragmentation and there's a sort of like greater choice, not just on the technical level, but on the personal level of, Hey, does that brand align with my values? And I think that's a, a, one of the great benefits of, of, of that fintech movement and, and this deal in particular.
0: The unbundling and rebundling is is kind of this endless cycle. And the unbundling of the infrastructure, the regulation behind a simple API for stocks and shares is really, really exciting. Sharon, what are your thoughts? Um, Anything uh, on this in particular or or especially the crypto piece?
1: Um, For me, I I was more stricken by the rise of this um, sort of armchair trading. And with these apps comes the risk of retail traders who aren't so aware of, you know, the downsides to their investments. So, like, you know, not only is it the stock markets as well, but it's crypto assets, which are quite volatile, and the prices can drop or crash um, within minutes. So, I, I just think they need to, you know, have a bit of caution. Similarly to buy now, pay later, to be honest, in, in everything, there's just always a bit of a downside. Yes, it's very exciting, and you know you can benefit from you know having a few gains rather than going through a professional investor with loads of fees, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And you know people had fun with GameStop. I know I'd certainly do put my hands up and say that you know it was an exciting moment, but at the same time, it does have risks because you know it, it could have really gone south, and loads of people did put a lot of money into it, like their savings. You know, and, and when it does go bad. Who's going to help you then? You know, that's all I can say. Much like anything, it has ups and it has downs.
0: It, it definitely does. Um, and of course, uh, Guerra in the US, Robinhood is obviously the most well-known provider of this. But there are others emerging that are competing like public.com uh, and others who um, are taking more of a community-led approach um, and not necessarily introducing options trading. Do you think that actually the, these APIs are enabling that type of competition?
3: The APIs are definitely opening up opportunities for fintech service providers for people to just you know go super niche and maybe target specific demographics or even markets like you know in in the global south for example like stock trading is is really really hard to do it's really expensive to do uh, but there's lots of players coming in now with the help of of companies like Alpaca to actually offer these services because you know again global soft countries may have some like currency fluctuation uh unstable stock markets so people want to be involved but it just it, it's more you know quote unquote stable to be in the american market but i i do want to like quote something that i saw today from market watch that basically said i'm, I'm just quoting some of it. it just said something along the lines that like robin hood investors so retail investors are propping up the stock market so basically, Jay, this J.P. Morgan strategist said that, like, until until retail investors stop charging into stocks, markets probably don't have anything to worry about. Uh, so it's crazy that like retail investors are propping the market, but like it just feels like such a like we're on the edge of like some kind of implosion. Like I just have this insane anxiety and dread and doom. I don't know what's going to happen next.
0: Well, what happens when suddenly the interest rates go up? People's day to day expenses aren't what they used to be. What happens when um, there isn't any more helicopter money and we're not getting like the stimulus checks in the U.S. that people are pumping into it? What if that spooks the markets and we see a major correction and then retail all rushes to pull its money out? And um, we saw that the, probably the last time in a big way in 1929. And so there are some concerns that we could we could see a repeat of that, that. The downside of democratization of of access to opportunity is democratization of access to you know financial catastrophe. So we, we have to be mindful of of both sides of that w- without question. Um, but it's interesting on the uh, sort of crypto side, um, every app now wants to add. Uh, the the sort of stock trading, but they also want to add crypto. They've got an all in one shop here with with Alpaca that might help them differentiate versus a drive wealth and others. Um, and then there's the, our friend payments for order flow. Uh, Robinhood famously got um, kind of a, a lot of stick for selling the order data that it sees from its retail customers to its uh, its market maker Citadel, who then can front run um, and. Sort of uh, increase the price of the trades that you, the retail customer, have, and then maybe legislation coming against this. Alpaca actually supports payment for order flow uh, for its customers and shares the revenue with it with its partners. And um, Sharon, do you think it's things like this that make people wonder about fintech? It, it feels like some bad things might come out in the wash in a couple of years, and and maybe we are in a bit of a bubble.
1: Oh yeah, I mean, it's just a way of losing trust. As well, You know, it doesn't really bring trust to the customer thinking that, you know, they're sharing this personal data with just one company. It turns out it's it's being sold out to loads of people. So yeah, I I would say it's definitely a a downside and they maybe should, you know, rethink about data protection and, you know, how best to treat a customer. Just pretty much like their own data, you know, would they like to sign up for something? And then turns out several different other outlets are nagging you with junk mail or weird calls. You know, it doesn't really help, I I feel.
0: And if I go to make a trade that appears to be commission free, Mm. um, but actually in the middle, somebody has bid up the price of my trade before I even got the stock, then it's like you've sort of nipped in up to the price, made a little spread out of me. And then it's it kind of what reminds me of TransferWise's like hidden fees on bank charges. And, and they exposed that with good transparency. This is kind of going the other way, which is saying, oh, it's all commission free. But actually, there's a, there's a hidden fee here that, that people often don't see, which I think is quite an important point. Um, but, but Frederick, I want to come back to that unbundling, rebundling point. Like, finance can now be rebundled around whatever brand that you have a personal affinity with. Uh, how do you think about where data is going to play a role as we rebundle fintech into these different experiences? Because I might want to do my banking wherever the problem is in, in different contexts, but I need my data to be consistent across all of that, surely.
4: Right. Well, it's... um. It's a bit of a broad uh, question, but if, like, if I can take a stab at maybe one angle, um, the way we look at it is from an infrastructure level, that consistency is basically the work that we do. Like we, <laughs> ourselves and the other players there is like, that's the role we play. We don't per- play it perfectly uh, in part because there's some dependency on the regulation to at some point, basically it's like, we'll, we'll get there in the interim, we try uh, to solve a lot of problems from a technology standpoint, because we can control that, some of the problems will will be solved from a regulation standpoint, which is coming in in part uh, thanks to the lobbying effort that uh, that ourselves and, and, and other players are, are doing. So yeah, like to put it simply, it's like it's a very messy picture that can be, and then to to uh, to rebundle that into a, 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 a the great experience that that basically fintechs want to offer their users there needs to be a quality infrastructure. And that's that's the, it, it sort of points a bit to the purpose of a um, of Flings or of a Plaid or, or others,
0: um, in my view. And I think as those account data providers become sort of trusted data access managers on behalf of the consumer, I think that becomes interesting because now it's beyond account data, it's payroll data, potentially it's my stocks and and trading data. And if I, as the consumer, have informed consent and control over that, which is where many of you are going with the gateways, that's only a good thing. 100%. Um, And let's hope that 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 continues. All right, next story comes uh, from Finextra again, and this is about a company called Wombat. Um, which is a great name for a company, and um, possibly competing with Alpaca as, as two of the best fintech names out there. They're raising £10 million to expand it to Europe. So Wombat is a UK-based micro-investing platform that says it's currently experiencing 15% month-on-month user growth uh, as novice investors flock to the stock market. In search of better returns on their savings it's appointed david davies former cio at hargreaves lansdowne and ex etoro md iqbal gundam uh, to its advisory board as it prepares to raise its series a the company last raised a two million pound seed funding in february and the ceo and founder said the series a funding round will support our initial expansion into europe and help us launch and market some exciting new products and features looking across europe Harrison also said they have a much larger competitive market to address with 100 million users and well-funded competitors like Raisin and Trade Republic. So this is an interesting one, Sharon. It's it, as they're competing with Raisin and Trade Republic, that sort of savings side of savings and investments has has probably been under uh, underemphasized. But we know there are many uh, apps like Plum and Moneybox, and and uh, in the US, I think Copilot and many others that try and encourage users to save more. What do you think about Wombat? What do you think about this news, especially as as it's sort of blurring the lines between savings and investments? Um.
1: I would say, I guess they've really snapped up to an opportunity that loads of people, as you said, are are missing, right? And especially because savings, interest rates here are so low and they're so low in quite a lot of places. So, you know, I guess everyone's trying to figure out what to do with their savings and investments. But then, yes, again, as you you noted, it does blur that line. And with line blurring always comes a risk, is how I see it. Um, So people might be thinking that they're doing one thing, so they're just putting their money in something they might assume is safe because it has the title of, a, you know, an icer on it when it might be something a little bit more risky or a bit more um, retail investor-y than they actually thought. So maybe I, I would probably say they they maybe need to utilize things um, within their apps, like providing users with knowledge, providing you know um, guidance and some sort of advice. So so just that way they can make sure that their users. Aren't getting muddy up, you know, because as we saw the stats earlier on with Binapolita, not a lot of people even knew that they were loans. So I guess it's just about knowledge, making sure that the actual customer knows what it is that they're doing. Um, provided that they do, then it looks like a safe bet. Savings should definitely be something people should consider now because they're so low and I would love some good savings out there with some solid interest rates myself.
0: <laughs> it's, it's interesting, as I think about the US listener, um, obviously, uh, if it's there's robin hood is one side of the spectrum there's acorns on the other end of the spectrum that have always done that sort of uh, roundups and savings but imagine if acorns had that sort of robin hood functionality as well that's sort of where wombat appears to be driving as 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 sort of a vague metaphor and as you say sharon like just trying to get any kind of a return right now is really hard that's why we've also seen um apps like eco.com and linus and um Donut and many others start to offer uh, DeFi savings, so four, five percent savings rate because they're investing in the crypto markets. The old saying is that sort of the um, the savings market has become the bond market, the bond market has become the equities market, and the equities market is now crypto. Um, Guerra, what are your thoughts on this? I know you 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 have some thoughts on all things crypto and DeFi.
3: Uh, yeah, crypto DeFi savings, um, definitely a millennial who has been born into a world where uh, savings rates are terrible. It sucks for us. Um, but this is, you know, I think hopefully this the work that these guys are doing at Wombat is going to maybe hopefully make a shift in terms of habits and, and encourage people to save more. But yeah, with regards to, uh, like, sorry, I'm just going to for a second talk about the DeFi enablement of like high yield savings. Um amazing like four or five percent is unheard of in in europe and north america right now um whereas like you know potentially in africa so where i'm right now in kenya savings rates are what like 10 6 to 12 percent, depending on where you go where you go so if like it'd be really cool if wombat could get some kind of DeFi stable coin like cbdc that's backed by the kenyan government uh that will return those kinds of yields that'd be amazing i don't know if that's possible but um, yeah, I wonder how Wombat would, you know, this that rate of 0.1. I wonder how it would fare as they expand across Europe, though, into different markets and different regulation.
0: Yeah, so that's the, the annual platform charge at just 0.1%, making it the cheapest platform for UK ISA investors buying individual stocks. So um, that's not a, a 0.1 savings rate, that's a 0.1 take rate on on their side. So the, you would typically see with the stocks and shares, ISA or, or in, in, in US parlance, um, in savings and investments um, that are in money market funds and, and, and the like, then you would be looking at sort of 4 5% return from that sort of thing. So it would actually be equivalent to sort of DeFi um, is what you see. Um, so our savings accounts, there's like a bank savings account where you would get your 0.1% and be charged 0.1%. And then there's the the stocks and shares iso where you would be charged 0.1%, but you would also potentially make 3%, 4 5%, depending on whether you had a, a NASDAQ index or an S&P or, or, or whatever else. As you look at this, Frederick, what do you think about this proposition? What do you think about the need for this? And especially trying to go pan-European as well.
4: Yeah, I guess I'll have to take off my flinks hat because I don't know that I have much perspective to bring from like a operating in Flings, but on a personal level... I guess, like that, as a consumer, like the challenge that I see that we're that, that we're discussing now is like, how do you preserve the value of your money? And yeah, it's, if if you can have access to um, either higher interest uh, savings account, like the, the the yield from crypto, or if you can channel your money through deflationary assets, that seems like a winning strategy. But the uh, but yeah, so um but I don't know that I, I have much more than that to add on this.
0: Yeah, no, it, as I look at this, it, it's interesting that they're trying to go pan-European or at least that's their ambition, especially post-Brexit, but but it it's compelling that I'm um, in, in a lot of European markets you actually have negative interest rates. So it it costs you money to save money, which is which is craziness. Um but but that that's a reality a lot of people are, are living with. and so to have something that can help you with that makes sense. This is there's an elegance to this proposition as well where it's sort of help me save every day with roundups, but also help that money work harder for me um, in the future. Yes.
4: And the problem is is not is the negative yield or, or close to zero or, or zero negative, but the problem is also the inflation. <laughs> yeah so the, if you if you correct to inflation, then you have depending on how you measure it, Anywhere between three to ten to twelve percent of decrease in value. Um, so your money is eroding over time. So yeah, it's a, it's definitely a problem worth solving. A
0: hundred percent. And and you know, when we do consumer research here at 11 F S, help me build a savings pot. Help me build financial resilience is is always one of the top most underserved jobs for most of society. Um, and fintechs that can really help with that uh, have massive appeal. So if you can make a genuine impact on that, mm-hmm. um, long long may that continue. Um, final thoughts on this one, um, Sharon, before we close out.
1: As I said earlier, it's mainly just about, you know, trying to tap into that savings market. And I I know personally, I would love some good yields. (laughs) So please, can there be a UK, more of this in the UK? And also just as, you know, Boris said, in the global south, I feel like it would definitely do very well there. And as a fellow Kenyan, I am all for it.
0: I, I dig it. <laughs> uh, alrighty, um, we are going to move on now to the part of the show where we round up some of the stories we didn't really have time to cover but deserve a shout-out. So, Guerra, do you want to kick us off?
3: Sure thing. Uh, so, this is coming from Finextra. Nubank seeks a $55 billion valuation in IPO. So, Brazilian digital banking juggernaut Nubank is looking for a 55000000000 billion-plus valuation when it lists in the U.S., according to Reuters. With an IPO rumored for late 2021 or early 2022, the valuation would make the eight-year-old bank more valuable than any Brazilian established banks. It would also be considerably more than the $30 billion valuation that NewBank held in June uh, when it scored a $500 million investment from Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway. Uh, The firm now offers personal lending, life insurance products for micro payments, instant payment services, and investment products. An incredible suite. So while Brazil dominates the customer base, NewBank has won 1.5 million customers in Mexico. And in just over a year, they have 300,000 Colombians who've signed up to their waitlist. Like, this is huge. Like, $55 billion is like a dizzying valuation, especially for a, a, a company coming out of Brazil. This is amazing. They've had a blank slate Really, in terms of of banking, the bar was like on the ground, and they've like definitely done a really great job to raise it for expectations of people expect from their banks. Uh, So, congratulations to them. We'll see what happens with this IPO
0: incredible execution congratulations to the new bank guys um the next story comes from the verge and um, invest at paypal could compete with robinhood and square's retail stock offerings. so the next platform of course we've covered it probably a little bit here could to rush on stocks like game and amc could be paypal as the company hired a brokerage industry veteran to lead the effort uh, paypal ceo told cnbc the company plans for additional financial services in the future including investment capabilities however it's Sources say it's unlikely the feature will be available this year. Rich Hagen served as Ally Invest president after that company acquired a startup he co-founded called Trade King, and now his LinkedIn page lists him as CEO of Invest at PayPal. Interesting. Uh, the meme stock trading action of the last year may have convinced PayPal it can't let Robinhood or Square take over the world. Interesting for me, like PayPal is is moving into that super app category. I think Robinhood's slowly starting to try and get there, that financial services super app, Revolut's heading in that super app category, where we're rebundling all of the fintech providers. But PayPal's strategy, again, has been to sometimes build, but sometimes partner. I wouldn't be surprised if it, if it's not Alpaca, then maybe it's a drive Wealth or somebody like it that's the provider underneath this. Uh, They partnered with Paxos to offer a lot of what they're doing with crypto and Anchorage and Visa and many, many others. So that sort of emergence of the B2B fintech provider space is enabling the rebundling of financial services inside of the super app. So why would I do all of my banking just inside of my bank when actually I've got this whole picture starting to emerge in these super apps? Uh, If you work in a bank and you're not paying attention to this trend, Pay more, um, And if you work in a bank and you're screaming it down the hallways and nobody's paying attention when you do scream it down the hallways, invite us in and we'll scream with you because uh, big banks, this is this is definitely something to pay attention to. Guerra,
3: Rails Bank and Status Money create a credit card with crypto investment rewards. So this is coming from uh, Crowdfund Insider. So Embedded Finance Platform, Rails Bank, and Status Money, the New York-based personal finance company, are partnering to launch a cashback credit card that automatically invests rewards into cryptocurrency. So the Status Money-branded credit card was brought to the market with Rails Bank's credit card as a service, which lets partners like Status Money provide a fully-featured credit card without needing to become a bank themselves. Uh, so this card enables card members uh, to earn 2% unlimited cash-back rewards on every purchase, and automatically invest their rewards into crypto by default. So credit cards are one of the most commonly used. So sorry, this is this is coming from Rails Bank's uh, North American CEO Dave Dov Mormar. Uh, he says that credit cards are one of the most commonly used spending mechanisms. But over eighty percent of cards that are issued are just issued by the top ten banks. So these guys are really wading into the into the credit card space in North America, which is you know very alive and well, leveraging DeFi to. Uh, provide customers with with really good rewards so i i see this i see i see more people kind of wading into the space of a little bit more leveraging defi to provide like good customer outcomes this is great uh simon
0: yeah absolutely and bitcoin as rewards as 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 frederick said might not be the worst thing in the world if you're already getting it as cash back especially if cash as a reward is deflating it What's the real inflation rate? 10% a year. Um, so it's kind of interesting. We saw BlockFi do that um, as as one of the first and Fold.app and many others seeing crypto as a reward mechanism and engagement mechanism. Um, and if you're interested in all of this kind of stuff, remember we do have another show called Blockchain Insider and our sponsor and my co-host over there, Kai Sheffield from Visa, I know has been deeply interested in this kind of stuff. And whilst we're on the subject of crypto, we've got to bring back our and finally story. So and finally... A fake Banksy NFT sold through the artist's actual website for more than $330,000. So, a hacker has returned more than $330,000 to a British collector after the hacker tricked him into buying a fake NFT advertised through Banksy's official website. The Banksy fan who got duped said he thought he was buying the world-famous Graffiti artist's first ever NFT, And a link to an online auction for the NFT was posted on a now deleted page of Banksy.co.uk and the auction ended early after the man offered more than 90% of the rival bidders. Banksy's team told the BBC, any Banksy NFT auctions are not affiliated with the artist in any way, shape or form. Oh my goodness. Uh, Thoughts on this one?
1: I mean, I feel like it's hard to claim NFT ownership in the first place, right? (laughs) Like it's generally just like bragging rights, isn't it not? Like, because it's still out there. Like people do have the ability, fine, you can, you know, claim it and maybe sell it and, you know, the right of ownership to to the work, but you're not really having anything else. There's no like legal safeguards for an NFT. So that's what I think
4: about that. Was it, you said it was returned the the money
0: or not? Correct. Oh,
4: interesting. It's a benevolent hacker.
0: Yeah. The hackers returned all of it, of course, except for the transaction fee of around $7,000, which if you've been using Ethereum right now, you know all about gas fees. My goodness, (laughs) I'm using Ethereum. It costs money to move money in ETH right now. We're still early.
4: Yeah. So the idea is the hacker was wanting to make a point. Why did he return the money instead of keeping it?
0: Do we know?
3: So, that's it's actually like a really interesting trend uh, that we're seeing lately of of crypto cr- criminals returning money. You know, there was a Polynet hack recently or what was it the Polygon hack? I don't I forget. I the know it was,
0: it was the Poly network hack. I got myself confused about this one as well because there's a network called Polygon and then there's Poly network. Just because crypto loves to be extra confusing. Yeah. So, there you go. Uh
3: so yeah, it was covered on episode 143 of Blockchain Insider, so if you want to listen to that go ahead. But I a lot of this is, like, just funny to me because it just feels like interviews, these, like, really elaborate interviews for these hackers who are, like, looking for jobs um, because basically they can be like, well, I managed to hack your system. Okay, give me a job as your head of security. Or maybe it's just bragging rights within their communities in the dark web. I don't know. Please don't hack me if you're listening. But,
0: yeah. <laughs> Heck, yeah. I, I want to pick up on Sharon's point because the, the NFT movement is kind of like um, – in, in the UK, we'd say Marmite. You know, you would love it or you hate it. Um, people, people tend to go one way or another, a bit like buy now, pay later. Generally, I'm, I'm a fan, but not because of the bragging rights side of it. Um, I'm a fan because it's disintermediated, um, the the gap between the artist and their uh, audience. So an artist anywhere in the world now has instant global distribution. And we've seen lots of artists from underrepresented backgrounds um, and from other parts of the world suddenly get access to this global marketplace with no middlemen taking a cut. So that's number one is is that distribution piece. And number two is the royalty side. So every time an NFT moves, you can bake into that contract that 10% of whatever the purchase price is gets sent back to the original artist. And that's baked into the movement of the of the NFT. So if I now have this thing and somebody else... Not, like, let's say the artist sold a work for $10 and it then sells for $100, then $1,000, then $10,000. All they ever got originally was that $10 if, they, if it wasn't an NFT. If it is an NFT, then the only way that that nft can ever move from one buyer to the to the seller from the seller to the buyer is if the artist gets their 10% or their cut or whatever it is so this this art with functionality, or this content or intellectual property with functionality, is going to be really interesting to see what creators can do with it. Yes, there are lots of legal uncertainties, but my goodness, it's interesting, isn't it? Um, to learn more about all of that um, and NFTs, how to safely get into buying them, the associated communities, check out the next episode of Blockchain Insider that drops on Wednesday, the eighth of September, where we do like NFTs defined. Uh, it's a very nifty show. You should you should definitely check it out. As you can I'm somewhat passionate about it. All right, that is all the time we had for all things fintech and maybe a slight detail via NFTs. That wraps up this week's show. Um, thank you so much to our guests. Where can people find out more about you? Let's start with Frederick.
4: Check our career page, because what we're looking for most right now is, is talented people in Canada, the US to join our team. And actually we hire throughout all of the Americas uh, right now. And um, and that would be it. And and if you can if you want to Google it, I would say Google Flinks and then add constitution. And that's the culture document that tells you a little glimpse about the culture that basically was produced five years ago and is still the same today So um, and still applicable. So I would invite you to Google Flink's constitution
0: and see if it's for you. Love that. Um, Sharon, how about you?
1: You can find me at my new Twitter handle, Sharon underscore kits. That's Sharon, normal spelling, underscore, and then K-I-T-S, like football kits. And also do check out the website, news.trust.org. Yeah, it just rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? All right.
0: News.trust.org. Yes. I mean, how, how could you how could you not be typing that into your mobile phone right Damn, now, right if, now. You're, if you're listening to this on your favorite podcast client? <laughs> um, do it, people. Uh, all right, Guerra, how about you?
3: Uh, you can find me at 11fs.com, all the cool stuff we're doing over there. And uh, I'm also on the Twitter app and the website uh, at, at Guerra.
0: And as for me, you can find me at SYTaylor on Twitter. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, Remember to join the conversation in social media. Search for 11FS or Fintech Insider, uh, or you can email podcasts at 11FS.com and go ahead and hit that subscribe button and bug everyone you know to do the same thing too. Thank you so much and goodbye for now.